Hello and welcome to the Oz Investing Podcast, the podcast for the everyday investor. Just a quick note before we begin today's podcast is that nothing in this podcast should be considered as personal financial advice. If you're ever in doubt about your financial situation, please reach out to a qualified financial advisor. With all that said and done, let's get into today's episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Oz Investing Podcast. My name is Sam and with me as always is my buddy Jude. How are you, Jude? Doing well, mate. How are you? Very well, thanks. Good to be back recording podcasts again. It's been a while since our last podcast, and that's because Jude has been occupied house hunting. Can you give our listeners a bit of an update? Uh, sure, Sam, sure. I think, you know, after months and months of uh, searching and hounding around, uh, you know, we finally managed to uh, narrow down on our dream home. It was more or less like the market finally accepted us because of the way the, the, the crazy house market but all's well that ends well in the end and uh, we finally have settled in and uh, are looking forward to staying in the new home that's awesome congratulations mate on finally buying your dream house thank you so much sam thank you and i, I think hopefully uh, from this point on there'll be more recordings <laughs> <laughs> good to hear All right, so moving on to today's show, I'm very excited because we've got our fourth guest on to the podcast. I'm very excited to welcome Dev Raga from the Dev Raga Personal Finance Podcast. And, uh, you know, I think really excited as well to have Dev on on our podcast today, Sam, because, uh, you know, when I first came into the country and, you know, when I needed to get up in terms of my financial literacy surrounding Australia and uh, in and around the, you know, in the markets or anything in terms of personal finance, I think Dev's podcast really helped me out. And, you know, firstly, it was a good source uh, for personal financing, budgeting and investment topics, right? So really, really good podcast. As you mentioned, it has a couple of episodes going on for it. So Dev, can you can you give us a quick introduction to our listeners as to, you know, what really inspired you to start this podcast? Yeah, thanks very much, uh, Sam and Jude, for having me on Oz Investing Podcast. And uh, congratulations, Jude, on your property purchase. Um, I, I was I was waiting for Sam to say you guys didn't record because you had to get a second job to uh, to now pay off the huge mortgage that you might have had as a result <laughs> of the property market. But uh, but no, it, it, it's 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 fantastic to to be able to own a home and live in your own house. There's nothing like it. For all of your listeners, so my name is Dev Raga. I'm a medical doctor and I live in Melbourne, Australia. And you know what inspired me to start this podcast was actually as a way of leaving a blueprint for my two young children to learn about money, finances, and investing in the rare event that I'm not around to teach them. And as a doctor, essentially my entire career is based on treating patients who've had terrible misfortunes in their health. So I'm eternally breaking bad news to people some days. So, you know, we can't take life for granted. So I needed a way to teach my children and perhaps their children also. So I found the podcast medium to be ideal, the most suitable for me to be able to do that. Uh, and of course, I'm also a very bad writer, so blogs weren't really an option. So <laughs> my primary motivation is to improve financial literacy for my for my children. And from then on, it just started growing. That's fantastic, Dev. You've got 124 episodes right now. It's an incredible amount of content. What's your secret in managing to do the podcast, your job as a doctor, and family life as well? 
Yeah, so, I mean, 124 and counting. I never really expected to have so many episodes when I first started. I only just was meant to do about 10 episodes in terms of basics of personal finance and financial literacy. And it has been relatively challenging, you know, to maintain a career, family life and, you know, a side gig like being a podcaster. I mean, I do it out of my own time. Uh, I don't get paid for doing it. I don't have any sponsors on my episodes. And uh, just recently, I've just been caught out in the big outbreaks, unfortunately, of COVID. So, look, mm. I'm very fortunate to have a very understanding family. And one of my children is, you know, of the age that she really wants to get involved with some of the questions. Uh, if anyone has listened to my podcast, she's actually on there asking questions in some episodes. I try and make it as fun as possible. Look, I'm in the process of reducing my workload as well in terms of my medical workload. So really trying to focus more on the podcasting side of things and other things, of course, I enjoy a little bit more. But um, it's not easy. It has been a bit of a struggle, but certainly had a bit more time during COVID and also more interest in the last 18 months than ever before. And I think that's because what COVID has taught a lot of people about money is that it's so important that you need to pay yourself first and save money uh, because at any time, you know, something like a pandemic can take away uh, your emergency funds, your livelihoods just in a split second, as has happened right now in Victoria and New South Wales. Spot on, spot on, Dave. I think uh, very important points you raised, right? And especially the times that we're going through. You know, and, and interestingly, you just mentioned that, you know, it's uh, you've your children too are, you know, involved in this process in a way that, you know, they, they want to understand and learn a bit more about money. Yeah. So how do you basically get them involved to, or you, you, you teach them all the basics of you know, the principles of money and how do you really get in, uh, get them involved in that conversation, you know, when it comes to around managing money? Yeah, I, look, I think, I think children, you know, smarter than what we give them credit for, and children are extremely good observers. They learn from observation. So, you know, I don't sit down and have financial lessons with them, but it's more of a family conversation around the dinner table or during the evening conversations, talking about budgets or, you know, finances or investing. I mean, one of the routine questions that I ask my daughter, my older daughter is, hey, have you looked at the stock market? Has it gone up or down today? And and she gets really eager and checks up her you know, she's got a little app on the phone and she opens it up and, and we have, you know, a bit of a bit of a banter about it. But mm-hmm. but essentially, my children are watching and learning from me and my wife. Mm-hmm. And that's not just in finance. I mean, kids learn from their parents for pretty much everything in the younger years. I mean, driving a car, they're watching you and learning from you how you behave in front of the wheel, how you interact with other drivers and other passengers and how you treat other people. So, you know, for children, I think most of this sort of stuff, particularly in the first sort of, you know, 10 years of life, is going to be learning by passive osmosis. Uh, it's probably the best way to teach kids about the importance of money, finances and investing rather than ramming it down their throat. And it's also really important. I mean, one of the things that I've taught my children is, you know, you Try not to take things for granted. You know, remind them that their circumstances can change any time. As my patients, when I see my patients, their circumstances are often changing all the time based on their medical condition. And it's not to scare children, you know, about life in general, but just to let them know that, you know, life happens. And so they have a sense of reality, a sense of understanding that money 
is tangible. It's not the most important thing in life, but it is important. And of course, this sort of uh, you know, reality check to some extent is relatively important. But of course, it has to be at a sensible age, you know, not when they're like four years old or five years old. But I'm noticing it more and more with my elder child. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's far more receptive to talking about money now than perhaps she was five years ago. And I think by natural observation, she's learned some basic behavioral habits about finances from myself and my wife. That's very interesting. Yeah, I think you've summed it up well there. I think actions definitely speak louder than words. So it's really good to hear that you're setting this great example for your kids. So I think most people would actually believe that being a doctor means not worrying about money and not worrying about finances. Why, Dev, have you been such a strong advocate in the medical world that this is not the case and that they should learn the basics of money management and investing? Yeah, look, I mean, doctors are, you know, in Australia are one of the highest paid professions. You know, we routinely feature in the top 20 professions when it comes to income. But there's a big difference between making money and having wealth. And the issue then becomes for a lot of doctors, uh, which I'm sure a lot of doctors are listening to this right now, uh, it becomes an attitude of, I can just make more money. I can out earn my expenses. And uh, I speak to doctors that earn in excess of one, two, three million dollars a year. It's not possible because, because, you know, when you make a million dollars and if you don't set up your finances properly, and have basic financial principles and literacy, then $1 million is not enough because your expenses mm. follows that money. So, mm. you know, there's a saying in finance, you can't out-earn your stupidity. You know, you can't keep working and working and working to make more money. And the other thing about doctors that I find, and I think this is this can be extrapolated to, you know, most professionals like engineers, accountants, lawyers, etc. We think that because we have a relatively high ATAR score in high school and getting into medical school or law school is actually a little bit more difficult than other university degrees, that gives us some sense of false security that we can use those intellect and skills in other areas like finances. And that's not actually true. You know, just because you're a brain surgeon that's really good at removing brain tumors doesn't mean that those skills are going to be transferable to the world of finances, investing or debt. So you've got to have a systematic approach, which is what I'm trying to you know, teach a lot of the junior doctors coming out of medical school nowadays. And uh, that's how it all got started. And, and a few doctors started listening to my episodes and went, whoa, there's actually really, really simple concepts here that why didn't I know this? And I'm a doctor. I'm meant to be smart. Uh, and you can see that in other professions, you know, uh, and and those skills are just not transferable outside of medicine. And that makes, you know, doctors very vulnerable for doing absolutely silly things with their money. Or worse yet, as I spoke to one radiologist recently, have a million dollars in the bank and haven't done anything with it over the last 12 months. Mm-hmm. So, you know, doctors tend to do weird things like that, despite, you know, relatively smart bunch of people. That's interesting again, interesting. And I think I like one thing about what you mentioned, Dev, is you can actually keep it pretty simple. And I think you've, you've been an advocate of that on your podcast as well, right? You can start having the basics and of personal finance from a very simple strategy. And I think one of those simple strategies is you pay 20% from your take-home salary and you set it aside uh, for retirement. But more importantly, you put into it an instrument which will make you money by the time you reach retirement, right? 
for you, that instrument is the stock market. And I think we, we hear that about, uh, we hear all about it in your podcast. What were the reasons for you to choose uh, stocks as that instrument? I think it's the simplicity of it. You know, going a step back, you know, about the 20% pay yourself rule, it's the behavior of finance, which is going to be far more important in the long run than the actual physically, you know, earning a lot of money and, and choosing the right investments and keeping your fears low. All of that comes later. If you don't pay yourself first and none of this works. Now, to be fair, I do have investment properties, but what I've realized over the last sort of, you know, five to seven years is that, you know, fundamentally, you just need to invest in things that you know and understand and want to understand. And I think the simplicity of the share market makes it relatively easy to understand for a vast majority of people. And I understood the share market, you know, over 10 years ago, much more easily than what I now understand about property, to be honest. And that's one of the mm-hmm. fundamental reasons why I stick to stock, um, stock markets, mm-hmm. because you don't have tenants, you know, you don't have council rates, uh, you don't have to fix things or repair things or change stoves or have compliance costs for making sure the um, index funds are tenantable, all that sort of stuff. Mm. And the other reason is the fees of investing in the stock market is far less than what the costs are of investing in the property market. And it's far more passive, far more passive in the stock market than it is in the property market. Now, that's not to say that the property market is bad. That's just to say the amount of time and effort that I have to put in to learn about the stock market or index fund or ETFs is far less than what I did learn about property. But fundamentally, though, invest in things that you understand or want to understand in. That's number one. And for me, you know, that pay yourself money goes straight into index funds basically the day that I get paid. Good takeaways there, Dev. You've also mentioned many times in your podcast that you should try to automate your finances and investing. So, The Vanguard product that you are personally using, that's actually no longer available to the everyday investor. Have you got any suggestions then on how they can automate their finances and their investments? Yeah, look, I think what Vanguard have done, and look, I'm I'm a great Vanguard fan and, and, and I've been their customer for a very long time. And their recent move into this Vanguard personal investor service, in my humble opinion, is silly. Uh, they took a product which was relatively easy, which is what I use in the what I call the old Vanguard, which is basically investing into their retail or wholesale funds. They took a relatively simple concept and the fundamentally you were able to automate it. So I can put money straight from my you know, bank account via BPay straight into the index fund and it sort of arrives into the index fund usually the next day. And they just complicated it by wanting to have a broker service associated with their uh, products. Now, in today's world, you're right, the old system doesn't exist, so we've only got to work with what we have, which is you know, their personal investor service, and of course, which is very similar to any broker. The way mm. to automate it using the new system is not fully automatable in the sense that you can automate money going from your bank account to the Vanguard personal investor cash account or whatever broker that you choose or Self-Wealth or Perla into the, into the cash account, then as far as I'm aware, Vanguard doesn't enable you to automate the next step, which is take the money from their cash account and then buy your preferred ETF or index fund. And okay. I, don't think, I don't think that process can be automated with the VPI. And I don't think that process can be automated 
as far as I'm aware, with most brokers' firms, except Perla. I think Perla is the only one that I've heard of and come across uh, that has full automation. Having said that, mm. uh, I've been very vocal about criticizing Vanguard publicly and privately. I've sent them numerous emails and I've tweeted them and Facebooked them, explaining that their VPR service um, is great. And now that they've finally got rid of the admin fee, which was just an absolute ridiculous double dipping fee that they had, I think the next step is they need to make that VPR service as automatable as possible. And they have replied to me and they have said that that's something that they're working on. But I'm just astounded that they haven't thought about it prior to releasing the VPR service. So I think that's a big fail from Vanguard. Uh, but apart from that, you know, I've been using them for a number of years and uh, it's a trusted brand and they're pretty easy to deal with. Yeah, I did see something online recently where they have changed the fee structure in that personal investor product, but I haven't looked too much into the details, but I, I did hear that they've modified it a little bit, which is nice to hear, I think, for most people. But yeah, it's a bit of a shame that there's not too much out there that's fully automated except for Perla. So yeah, I think June and I, we've been meaning to do this for a while. We were going to do a podcast and I think we still will on comparing different brokerage platforms out there. So yes, hopefully we'll get around to that and we'll actually do a deeper dive into Perla. It's actually something that I'm interested in looking at further. I think, I think Sam, fundamentally, mm. you know, with, I mean, when you think about how broker firms make money, they make money from trading yeah yeah and the last thing i want your listeners yourselves myself and my listeners and the general public to do the last thing i want them to do is trade because trading is not investing that's probably why a lot of these brokerage firms don't have automation because it discourages you from trading repeatedly because if you trade more they more they make more money so I, i'm not saying this is a conspiracy but but essentially, if your business model relies on people to do things uh, uh, like trade stocks or ETFs multiple times a day or multiple times a week, then you are going to not have features to have consistent abilities to invest on a weekly, fortnightly or monthly basis in an automated fashion. Now, what's interesting about Perla is I, 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 have, I have spoken uh, uh, to the co-founder of Perla, and I think it's a very genuine effort from them to create a system to enable investors who want to trade, go for it, but who also want simple automated systems in place so that they can have a set and forget lifestyle. And I think that's a fantastic thing that they've done. And I'm just surprised that other brokerage firms haven't emulated it. It's And, and it's a little bit disappointing, actually, because automation, you know, it just takes the emotion out of investing. Yeah, very true. Very, very true. I think, Devan, I think it's it's an imp interesting point. You know, it's a good segue to the next next part of the conversation is, you know, when you automate, you need to have a structure and a plan in, in place. And that's where I think, you know, your your budgeting elements come into picture. And it's it's a key role, right, in financial planning. So you, you spoke about the 20% and what we need to do in terms of the retirement, right? So what do you do with the remaining 80%? Yeah, so I mean, the the percentages that I've come up with in my own life is all based on after-tax income. So I don't use gross income because I think after-tax income is reality. So you know, you take 20% pay yourself, so that's straight to investments. The other 80% are split into you know mortgage, rent fees, luxuries, and expenses. So basically, 30% of your after-tax income 
should be for your housing expenses, so mortgage or rent, and 20% of after-tax income should be for luxuries, such as holidays or maybe during COVID. If you didn't have any holidays, maybe that can be going towards your emergency funds or beefing up your pay-yourself money. And then you have 30% of after-tax income for your expenses. And, uh, you know, for me, my expenses have been relatively stable over the last five years. I mean, my income has gone up significantly, but my expenses have been relatively stable. Perhaps the kids' school fees are probably the largest expense so far. So uh, that's a sort of, I mean, I, I really believe in a simple budgeting strategy. So, you know, I just split it up into these percentages. You don't have to be absolutely accurate, but, you know, I, I feel that a household budget should fit on the back end of an envelope because if it's itemized and it's too complicated and spreadsheets, it's unlikely that you're going to follow it in the long run. I, I sort of approach finances, uh, Sam and Jude, very similar to the way that I would approach a patient uh, mm-hmm. who comes in and mm-hmm. says, I've got chest pain, you know. If you've got chest pain, you think about cardiac disease, but there's a number of other things that can cause chest pain, like clots in the lungs and musculoskeletal pain or rib fractures or, you know, collapsed lungs, et cetera. You've got to have a broad approach. And if you don't have a systematic way of assessing these people, then you will miss, you know, uh, the common conditions, but also the rare and often missed conditions. And finances is very similar. So, and, and that's the same principle, you know, rather than just focusing on investing, you need to focus on your expenses, your fees, your investing, your debt, your insurance, your wills, uh, and your superannuation. And if you sort of approach it like that, it, it just makes life a little bit easier. And certainly with budgeting, I've just approached it in a very, very simple, simple way. That's that's fantastic, Dev. And I think it's it's a, another good key takeaway, right? You you look at it from a holistic point of view rather than you know just taking and having a siloed look of it. It's there was another mention in in your uh, your response just now, Dev, is where you spoke about emergency funds, and I think uh, the situations and the times we are currently in, right? You know, it's so important to have an emergency fund. You know, based on your experience and you know uh, your outlook on things, is there a particular you know number of months? emergency fund of expenses, which keeping in mind what we've gone through in this pandemic that, you know, users or listeners should really aim for? Yeah, look, I think at least, I mean, you've got to have a couple of emergency funds. The first one is going to be your easy $1,000, $2,000 expense emergency funds for a flat tire or, you know, utility bills that are a little bit higher this month compared to normal or a roof leak, etc. So you've got the sort of basic emergency fund. But the real emergency fund, I mean, I think, I mean, at least three months of after-tax income. And and notice I mentioned after-tax income rather than expenses, because a lot of people have emergency funds just for expenses, whereas I tend to think about having emergency funds where you're continuing to pay yourself first 20% of after-tax income to investment. So basically, if you saved up around three months of your after-tax income, then you're relatively safe for the average emergency. Of course, if you have something like COVID, which is, you know, lingering on now 18 months down the track, you know, some people may wish to have 12 months at least uh, of your after-tax income. And it depends on your profession, whether you're salaried or whether you're sole trader. To give you an example, in the medical field, most doctors are not salaried. So they operate as sole traders or have their own companies, which means essentially in March last year, it was a mandated government shutdown, which meant that instantly, instantly surgeons, anaesthetists just lost about two to three months worth of income. They went from X amount of income to zero because 
there was no operating because the government said you can't do any elective theatre lists. And, and if they didn't have any emergency funds, which a lot of them didn't, they would have suffered immensely. Now, general practitioners lost about 30% during COVID because, you know, restrictions on what they can bill patients, particularly with telehealth. So, you know, we're at the mercy of what the government, you know, policies are. And nowhere is it more obvious than COVID that emergency funds are very, very, very important. I'm, I'm not sure how your, you know, careers and your sort of uh, incomes were affected last year, but certainly in the medical field, because they're sole traders, a lot of doctors got affected really badly. Yeah, that's really interesting insight and definitely, yeah, a reminder of the times that we live in. It's just really like this work gets used a lot, but it's really um, unprecedented times right now. These kind of events are once in 50 years, once in 100 years. So definitely good things to kind of keep in mind for these abnormal times, I guess, to perhaps beef up that emergency fund. Also, just switching over a little bit more now to superannuation. So you do talk a lot about the 20% also going to investments, but some people may know that additional contributions to super are a very good way of maximizing tax advantages. So my question to you is, for the average person, do you think that they should put an additional amount of money on top of the 20% that they may use for investing? Or do you believe that that 20% should just go perhaps only to salary sacrificing? And then also, if an individual's home salary is not too high, what is your recommendation then on that part? Should they salary sacrifice or not? Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. And that is, it depends on your income and depends on your cash flow situation. So if cash flow is not a huge problem for you, then the number one thing that I think everyone should do should be to maximize their concessional contributions, you know, particularly if their you know, tax rate is you know, above 30%. Now, just to explain it very simply, if your tax rate is 30% and you maximize your concessional contributions, which is now $27,500 and not $25,000 because it's been indexed up, you are getting an instant 15% tax break by doing that because the concessional contributions that go into your super are only taxed at 15%, whereas had you earned that money, then you would have been taxed at 30%. And then from your after-tax income, you would have taken 20% of that and invested. So if you couldn't do both, then the number one thing you should probably do is maximize your superannuation. Now, I guess the counter argument to that is, oh, but, you know, I want to do fire. I want to retire early, which means why would I lock away my, you know, investments for the next 30, 40 years? And, you know, that, that's an entirely personal decision. Now, for me, you know, I believe in financial independence, which is the FI component of it. I don't really believe in the RE component of it. I'm not going to give up my profession as a doctor anytime soon. I may choose to work less. But at some stage, you know, I'm still going to be trading some time for income, not because I need to, but because I want to. Because in medicine, just like any other profession, if you don't work for like three months, you'll you know, forget most things, really, and, and you lose that skill, particularly in interventional medicine, where you're doing a lot of procedures. If you don't practice it, then when I say practice, you know, I'm not saying practice on patients, but if you don't operate on people and do <laughs> procedures, then, you know, there are some certain skills that you might lose. 
So yeah, certainly to answer your question, maximize your super if that's the only thing you can do. But if you can pay yourself 20% after that, that's even better. But I do acknowledge it's a very aggressive tactic to maximize super and pay yourself. But if you're not maximizing super, you're basically giving free money to the government. And sure as hell, the government's not going to give you free money. <laughs> well said, well said, Dev. And, and, and just on that point on super, right? So if obviously, I think if you try and have that focus in, you know, trying to maximize your contributions towards your super, it's so important that, you know, the faith you're putting in to super and the super fund in itself, it makes sense for you to do the due diligence on that particular fund's performances, right? So when you were selecting your super fund, right, what were some of the parameters considered and what would be some of the parameters to be considered if someone is really looking at their performances in their super funds? Yeah, look, good question. Look, for the average person, you got to go with an industry super fund. I mean, that's a given. If you're going with a retail super fund, you better have a pretty good reason because we know that industry super funds, you know, largely speaking and generally speaking, broad spectrum, they are cheaper. And they're basically run for the benefit of the members. So that's number one. I'm with the health industry super fund. You know, I haven't really researched all the different types of super funds that I could be part of because a lot of people get, you know, you know, really, really fixated on fees. And, and don't get me wrong, fees are really important. But, you know, they're really important if you're looking at sort of one, two or three percent fees in your superannuation funds. If you're paying fees, I mean, my my index fund indexed option in my uh, superannuation has a fee of 0.06% plus an admin fee of 0.1%. So I think it's about 0.16% within my super. That is largely my fees. Once you're down to less than 0.5%, you're doing pretty well. So if you, if you keep your fees to less than 0.5% annually, in your superannuation, that is including the uh, particular investments that you have within super, that's pretty good. Now, a lot of people get confused with contributions taxes and say, oh, no, you know, hundreds of dollars of my contributions uh, are being taken away in taxation. Well, you can't do anything about that because that's the government. You need to write to your government to say, well, that's this, you know, inappropriate, although, you know, it's only 15% compared to marginal tax rates. So, you know, fees-wise is really important. But don't get too fixated, you know, 0.01% or 0.02%. That's just, that's, you know, nitty gritty stuff. And that's, that's not, one, that's not what, what's going to kill your investment. The second thing is it's really difficult to compare fund performance because the investments that these funds hold are not all the same. So, for example, if you're with one super fund, that's, you know, balanced fund, mm-hmm. and that's your investment. And you switch over to another, they have a balanced option as well. Well, it may turn out that they're actually not the same balanced fund. I mean, the investments within that balanced fund could be completely different. So I think this problem is a huge problem in Australia. And I think this is where the feds have to come in and sort of have a way of comparing superannuation funds performance on an equal basis. And I think my understanding is, that is the plan, and I'm not sure exactly when that's going to be live. And the third thing is, and this is really critical, is insurance, because you know it depends if you need it or not. And insurance in one fund, personal insurance that is, the income protection, life, TPD, etc., you got to check what insurance options they have, because the insurance options from one fund is not the same as another super fund. So when you change super funds based purely on fees 
you may actually be missing out on some of the insurance coverage options. So those are the three things. It's got to be industry super fund, I think. Mm-hmm. You look at the fund performance by trying to you know, match the particular investments within the fund. You've got to look at the fees. You've got to look at the insurance. That's great takeaways there, Dev. Yeah, I think you're right. It's really, really hard to actually compare super funds because it's exactly as you mentioned. They all compare it with their default balanced fund. And inside that balanced fund, it's all very different depending on which superannuation company you look at. So I think it's actually still upon us as individuals to still do a bit of that due diligence and really find out further details about what's exactly is inside what are the fees? And as you just mentioned there, the insurance as well. So just on that point, so just with life insurance, total disability insurance, income protection, these are included most of the time. But do you think it might be wise for someone to perhaps increase the limits on the particular insurance? Like how should someone benchmark how much insurance they need and how much they should be paying? And A second question to that then, are there any pros and cons of having insurance then outside of super? Yeah, good question. Look, I think everyone should consider personal insurance. The one thing to point out is that if you're getting insurance via super, you're unlikely to be able to obtain trauma or critical illness insurance. My understanding is that insurance is only available outside of super. And the difference between that and TPD is that for TPD, you've got to be permanently disabled and you've got to be totally disabled. And for trauma and critical insurance, you don't need to be. So, for example, if you have a heart attack, that would be trauma or critical insurance. But you might survive the heart attack and go back to, you know, doing your profession again. Whereas for TPD, it might have to be, uh, you know, a completely paralyzed approach or motor neurone disease or something a catastrophic like that. The other thing about insurance within super and outside of super and again, I'd, I'd encourage your listeners to do their due diligence, is their own occupation. So when you have TPD within super, my understanding is, and, and correct me, Sam and Jude, if I'm wrong, is that you really can't have a super-specified own occupation for your TPD, but you can have it outside of superannuation. Now, to answer your question about benchmarks, it's very, very tricky. I mean, there's it's a, it's a wide, wide array of information that you need to import into your own personal situation and try and come up with a figure because it depends on your financial situation, your asset and liability situation, your net worth, your dependence, your profession, your stability of income, your savings level and your current investments. I mean, uh, you know, if you are, you know, age 50 with kids all grown up, uh, all moved out, uh, you're in your late 50s, you have great jobs, you have an asset portfolio worth a few million dollars, you know, producing $120,000 of income per year, you know, it's unlikely that you're going to need the same level of insurance as someone in their 30s with two young children with house debt and a significantly lower income. But life insurance, probably, you know, looking at between sort of seven and a half to 12 times your annual income, probably, in terms of getting life insurance. There's a lot of changes coming for income protection, even in 2021, as you know, that uh, agreed value policies are no longer the go. Uh, after March 2020, but there's a five-year rule that might be coming up in October 2021, which basically means insurance companies can harass you every five years for more information about your lifestyle, your risk factors. You don't need to undergo a medical, is my understanding, but they may ask you whether you've gone skiing in the Swiss Alps or whatever like that in the next five years. And and if you have, then they'll put you as a higher category potentially, uh, or if your income changes, then they can take that financial situation into account. 
Now, to answer your question about pros and cons between super and insurance outside of super, mm-hmm. look, the good thing about super insurance is that you're using pre-tax dollars to buy insurance, which is relatively cheap. Uh, but any sort of payout that you might get, particularly with TPD, is taxable. Whereas TPD outside of super or trauma critical insurance outside of super, uh, because you've used your post-tax dollars to buy those policies, any payouts that you might get are generally not taxable. Insurance is often cheaper by super, whereas insurance outside of super is a little bit more expensive. But the claim ability, the claims process, and we talk about coverage and super and fees, et cetera, and your premiums, but the way to actually claim something in the event that something goes wrong, my understanding is after talking to insurance brokers and financial advisors, it's actually quite difficult via super because the money goes into sort of a trust structure and then your beneficiary has to then sort of fight for that money. It's a little bit, takes a little bit longer, whereas um, the claims process outside of super insurance is a lot easier. And of course, if you go via a broker, they'd be able to help you through the claims process. And, and the other thing with super, of course, for your listeners to always have is to have a binding beneficiary. You've got to do a binding nomination for your beneficiary, not just log into your super and then you know, click on who your beneficiary might be because that is not binding. As a very famous case recently showed, a Bendigo judge claimed their recent girlfriend who'd passed away uh, claimed their life insurance money despite the girlfriend, you know, putting the beneficiary as uh, her mother. Now, uh, those are the main sort of changes between the super and uh, super insurance and insurance outside of super. I have insurance within super, which is not that great. But I also have insurance outside of super. And in fact, my outside of super insurance is my primary insurance that I've had. And I've had it for a very long time. Now, those, those are fantastic insights. Look, so just a little bit more on the on the binding beneficiary. How do you lodge the binding beneficiary? Do you actually have to submit some paperwork or something like that? Correct. Uh, for my super fund, it had to be done uh, by written paperwork. It's just a single form that I fill out and nominate um, you know, my, my beneficiary as the binding beneficiary. What I used to think in my younger years was that I could just log into my super account and just you know, put my partner's name down as uh, the beneficiary. My understanding is, and again, check with your super, but my super clearly said that is not binding. I had to do further paperwork. And the other thing with binding beneficiaries is that I think they only last for three years. You've got to keep filling out the paperwork every three years. Oh, wow. So I've, I've just done my third cycle. And I think they do <laughs> remind you as well. They do remind you, but it's not like a set and forget thing. I, I'm not sure how much of your listeners would know that, but a lot of doctors don't. So if, if you're listening and if you have super, make sure you have a binding nomination form for your beneficiaries. Yep. I'm going to actually check that out tomorrow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think that's that's the first thing on my agenda as well, right? <laughs> do not, that and, in, and in that case, do not have a heart attack tonight <laughs> because it'll just make it so much difficult. <laughs> of course not. And I think that's that's really that's really some good insights there, Deb. Thank you so much for that. And, you know, thanks for pointing us into the right direction now in terms of putting something on our you know, to-do list for tomorrow morning. So thank you for that. This concludes part A of episode 9, interview with Dev Raga from the Dev Raga Personal Finance Podcast. Stay tuned for part B.